Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 17. Uh, This week, it's just Sarah and I. Uh, Mark and Gladys are off this week because of the U.S. Thanksgiving. Uh, We also have a special guest this week. We have Gary Buckmaster, who's going to talk to us about Azure data centers. Uh, But before we get to Gary, Sarah, what do we have in the news? Yeah, it's a pretty light news week this week. It's post-Ignite and it's Thanksgiving. But there's one thing that caught my eye, which is, again, one of my favorite things. We have Azure Monitor. um, And now we have a a health feature in Azure Monitor for VMs. So essentially, um, it's a feature that will monitor the health of virtual machines. And if any parameters uh, health-wise in your virtual machine that's being monitored is outside Uh, an acceptable or normal range, it will actually fire you an alert off. Now, that's something that you could have done before in your uh, machine, but now it's actually all built in and nice and configurable, so much easier. And that is all I have this week. Yeah, I have a couple of interesting points. Uh, The first one is we made an announcement that uh, we have committed to work with Intel on some of the next generation of confidential computing. We spoke some weeks ago to Ava Black about the Confidential Computing Initiative uh, on Azure, and this is just taking it to the next level. So we're working really closely with Intel, primarily on the software guard extensions. Uh, There'll be an update to all of this stuff available next year. Uh, This will unlock many, many more confidential computing scenarios for our customers. We already have some available today in the likes of, say, SQL Server in IaaS, and um, we also have the ability to run containers inside of uh, what are called secure enclaves. And we also have the open enclave SDK. Uh, you can use specific kinds of uh, virtual machines to build your own uh, enclaves if you wish. The other thing is, uh, this is in preview, uh, as your storage now has the ability to prevent shared keys. Uh, if you're not familiar, you can basically get to Azure Storage in two major ways, or the authorization you can use in two major ways. The first one is either using AAD, uh, which is obviously authentication and then authorization. And then the other one is by using a shared key. Some customers don't like the idea of a shared key. So now there's there's the ability to prevent the use of shared keys altogether. Uh, Another item that I noticed when I was reading through some of the the confidential computing work, We haven't really talked much about this, but a critical part of confidential computing is being able to verify that the secure enclave is actually the authentic secure enclave and not a rogue. And we do that through the Azure Attestation Service. Uh, That's in preview right now. It's kind of bespoke, but if you're building your own secure enclave using the Open Enclave SDK, or you're using, say, uh, SQL Server, or you're using some of the other services that will come on stream, you need to use an attestation server. And uh, so that's a service that we have now available in Azure as well. And the last point I want to bring up is that we now have Terraform support for Azure Firewall. So you can actually deploy an Azure Firewall policy uh, using Terraform. Um, there's still a couple of areas still where Terraform doesn't support everything that ARM templates do, uh, but thankfully it looks like HashiCorp are filling that gap substantially. So with that, let's change tax and let's turn attention to Gary Buckmaster, who's going to talk to us about Azure data centers. So Gary, why don't you spend a moment, introduce yourself, how long you've been at Microsoft and what you do? Yeah, thanks. Um, 
I've been with Microsoft now for almost three years. And uh, prior to that, I, uh, in fact, I joined Microsoft while I was still living in Singapore. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to travel for Microsoft, going to various countries and, and talking about Azure. Uh, prior to that, I was a technical sales lead for the company that IBM bought and turned into IBM Cloud. So a company that you know, some of you may remember called Softlayer. So I've spent a lot of time in and around big enterprise data centers for quite a while. When I moved back to Australia, I joined um, an institution that we call the Microsoft Technology Center, and there's like 45 of these around the world. And this is a place where we bring customers to do really deep technical engagements around anything to do with Microsoft technology. So it could be Azure, it could be Office 365, it could be Power Apps, it could be some combination thereof. And we'll sit down with them figure out what it is that they're trying to solve for. We have all the toys in the toy box. So I've got Azure Stacks, I've got HoloLenses, we've got you know every, every single Microsoft device here, and we can create whatever the scenario is that the customer is trying to solve for. And then we can rapid prototype, do some hands-on hacking, and ultimately, hopefully, deliver the outcome that they're looking for so that then they can take it off and turn it into some sort of a production type um, deployment. I have got here in my notes, explain what a data center is. Now, I'm going to assume that quite a lot of people listening probably have an idea what a data center is, but maybe we should talk about data centers in cloud and cloud providers and how they're different. Yeah, no, it, it is a good question. And I guess the conversation really changes depending on what kind of a data center we're talking about because in my, in my career i started with like the first data center that i was looking after was quite literally a closet inside of an office that had a few um, av cable racks and a bunch of old hp servers that were bolted into it um, and then almost every job after that the scale of the data center that i was looking after changed by an order of magnitude so um, it was really eye-opening when I, you know, started at Softlayer, and we're talking about um, a, a pod that's like sort of two megawatts and 150 racks of servers, and that's one pod, and there's four per data center. And then coming and working in Azure and walking into an Azure data center, which was at that time it was uh, one of the Singapore data centers, and it was 10 stories tall, and it had capacity for somewhere between 150 and 200,000 physical servers, and it was 72 megawatts, and that was one of the data centers that we operated on the island and I realized that everything that I had seen prior to that was a, a different animal and it's not to say that everything that I'd seen prior to that was not as good we were talking about a completely fundamentally different technology proposition when we're talking about a hyperscale data center that sounds uh significantly significantly bigger because I also my first job was working in a data center but it was a lot smaller than that it was just one floor in the UK <laughs> and yep yeah, a heck of a lot smaller um are there any other things that you would say are big differences between these hyperscale data centers and what a lot of people would traditionally associate with a data center aside from the scale yeah, it's it's a good question. There's there's a bunch of engineering problems that need to be solved for when you're talking about hyperscale. Um, one of them that Microsoft has been really on the front foot about is talking about energy uh, efficiency and, and power usage and water usage. When you're running these big hyperscale style data centers, they're very power intensive. I mean, they have 
they'll have the actual power substation right on the property because that's the amount of power that they're drawing and they need very reliable power. They use a lot of water for cooling and that can potentially have a lot of impact on the uh, on the environment. And so designing the data center for absolute efficiency to make sure that we're not wasting tons of power, wasting tons of water is, is one of the design considerations. Uh, another one is just when you go into an enterprise data center, you're going to have various sets of compute that you need to design for. So for instance, I might be running an SAP HANA environment and there's going to be some specific compute that I need to stand that up for. Um, and I'm going to have a power budget and I'm going to have some rack space budget that I need to accommodate for. But I also might have a really storage intensive workload and I need to have a couple of storage area network devices. Um, and those are going to have a power budget or I might have something that requires a lot of GPUs because I'm doing maybe some rendering or I'm doing a machine learning algorithm. Um, and so I'll have these little pockets of power that are allocated to one part of the data center and I can't move them around and be flexible in an enterprise data center because I, I'm tied to that particular workload. Whereas in a hyperscale facility, you've got more homogenous compute and you can move various services into and out of that compute based on demand, based on end of life of hardware, based on a lot of different things. And that allows them to be a little bit more flexible with the design. How, how does that play into, because we talk a lot in Microsoft about all the different Azure regions that um, and we talk about the redundancy um, and of course traditional data center redundancy is just making sure you have some fairly physically separate locations. But when we talk about that on hyperscale on a global level, how does that work? There's, there's three concepts um, that we use when we're describing a, a data center environment for, for Azure. Um, the first terminology that we use is is a geography or a geo and more often than not now that is a country boundary but for the purposes of discussion and just to be as inclusive as possible uh, a geography for us is basically going to be a data residency envelope so it's going to be you know australia for example where there's going to be a data residency requirement around keeping certain types of data onshore at all times um, but you know in the european union for example we could have um, regions of data centers that are throughout the European Union and they're going to respect the data residency or data sovereignty requirements of the European Union. So GEO is, is the first one and then inside of GEO we will deploy one or more Azure regions and typically it's two Azure regions um, and a region is usually centered around a uh, metropolitan area like in Australia it's it's Sydney and Melbourne are the two the two major public cloud regions and we'll have multiple data centers in that region that are used to deliver Azure services. And so it's important to note that when we talk about an Azure region, we're talking about multiple data centers that sit inside that region to deliver Azure services. And in some cases, those are going to be multiple data centers clustered on a single physical campus, but more often than not, they're clusters of data centers that are geographically separated from each other inside of a latency envelope so that we can keep storage uh, consistent, but they're separated enough that a localized instance like a power outage or a flood or a fire or something like that is only going to impact one set of data centers and not the entire region. Now you talked to, uh, you touched on it a second ago. Um, these different sovereign clouds, you mentioned the EU, um, and of course we know GDPR is a huge thing for anyone who deals with um, EU citizens data, but can you talk a little bit more about these sovereign clouds and what they are? 
Yeah, so there's there's Azure Public Cloud, and that's you go onto the Azure portal and you sign up for a, a service, and you can deploy into any of those those regions. And that number, by the way, changes almost on the daily. So we we just announced yesterday. We announced Sweden is uh, the the latest region. So I think that brings us up to 67. Um, we also have a couple of sovereign clouds, and the, the one that most listeners of the podcast here will be familiar with would be the United States Department of Defense cluster of data centers or regions that we supply to the U.S. government. Um, but then there's also there's China, um, and we have a, a, a set of Azure services that are delivered into China, but with respect to China's rules around how non-Chinese companies can do business inside of China. And then we have an additional sovereign cloud in Germany, and there's some specific rules in Germany around how services like public cloud are delivered. And so there's a sovereign cloud environment that stood up in Germany that respects that, that particular set of rules. When I'm talking to customers and we're designing a system, uh, invariably we talk about uh, cryptographic defenses, uh, especially encryption of data at rest. So I take as an example, say SQL Server or say Azure Storage, and there's an option there to encrypt the data at rest. And often when I'm talking to customers, I explain to them, just be aware of what that is really trying to mitigate. And what is there to mitigate is essentially a stolen hard drive. Um, it's not there to mitigate an attacker coming in through the front door. Now, if you own the key to that, you can pull the key and the attacker just gets just gets ciphertext. But invariably, when I say stolen hard drive or perhaps a hard drive that isn't destroyed when it fails, the customer will say, well, well, hang on. So what happens to a hard drive when it fails? How do I know that my data is secure even though a hard drive has been decommissioned? You know, how do I know someone isn't going to walk out the building with with a hard drive? Yeah, and that's such a good question. And I, I have very similar conversations with just about every customer who comes through the door. Um, and it, it partially comes from an enterprise and uh, enterprise data center practice mindset, right? Having worked in enterprise data centers for a long time, you know, there's a set of security controls that you have to work through in order to get access to the data hall. Then once you're in the data hall, you can lay hands on, on servers. And yes, potentially you could pull a hard drive out and walk out the door with it. If you're used to that enterprise mindset, you immediately map that into a public cloud environment. You think, oh, well, hang on, that risk ex exists. And so what are the controls that exist to, to mitigate that risk? And I need to be able to answer that question. There's there's a lot to unpack. And I guess the easy way to, to do that is let's, let's sort of paint a picture. When somebody who is going to go into an Azure data center, and there's only a, a very small portion of the Microsoft employee base that can actually go into any data center, even if you're cleared for access, unless you have a specific reason to be there on that particular day, you don't go to the data center. Um, you don't get on the property. So there's only the people who are cleared to ha have access to the data center. And of that subset, there's only a subset of people who can actually go into the data halls. So let's assume that I have access. Let's assume that I work in the data center because the, the real risk is insider threat, right? So let's assume that I'm a data center technician that I have uh, access to go into the data center. In order for me to go into the data hall, I have to go through metal detectors and those metal detectors are manned 24 by 7, 365. And they're looking for data bearing devices going into and out of the data hall. There's very strong controls around actually putting hands on the compute. Um, and there's there's a lot of monitoring around if you actually go and pull a drive out of a server, there's a process that we use where we monitor when that happens. So 
if I'm a data center technician and I'm working in an enterprise data center, there's a subset of activities that I have to do as, as interrupt activities. And one of them is a storage device like a dead disk, for example, that I need to go in and replace straight away because there's only so much redundancy that's there. At Azure scale, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of physical disks in one data hall. And so we have a lot of software that makes sure that when one of those disks dies, as they do almost every minute, we replicate that data. So when you put data into Azure, we immediately make three copies at minimum of that data and we spread that across multiple disks, uh, multiple storage appliances throughout the Azure region. So there's a lot of physical redundancy that's in there. And then that redundancy is managed by software. And so that means that when a, a disk dies in place, we leave it in place and we have a process around when we go and we reclaim those disks and how we we deal with those disks and, and destroy them to, to ensure that um, number one, that the data security requirements are kept in place, but also because it's it's very cost intensive. Um, the, the, the requirements around how we go and we pull the disks out, how do we replace them? If we were to do that ad hoc, it would be very expensive for us to do and be quite risky. So rather than going and replacing disks individually, we'll actually go and cull all of the disks at the same time. So one of the controls there is just that in order to go and lay hands on the physical server in the first place, it only happens at a time when we're reclaiming disks. And then there's a set of controls in place around how that's done, that there's multiple sets of eyes on how the disks are being pulled out how they're being stored, how they're being taken through the data center, and ultimately how they're shredded on site. Um, and we do shredding on site at every single one of the hundreds of data centers that we have around the world. So that by the time your data physically leaves the data center, it's in a physical form that simply can't be reclaimed. There's no way that they're going to get the data off of it. So that's one set of controls. But then from a hyperscale perspective, there's another set of controls that's even probably more complicated. When we're talking about three or more copies of data that spread across multiple disks, we're actually talking about, let's use a gigabyte of data, for example. That gigabyte of data is then broken into shards, and then those shards are spread across multiple disks, and there's three copies of each shard. It would be nearly impossible for somebody who walks into an Azure data center to be able to look at a particular disk and say, this disk contains the information that I'm interested in that belongs to customer X. And so this is the disk that I need to grab because of the, the actual scale of what we're talking about and how quickly data moves into and out of these devices. So there's, this, there, there's the security controls that we have in place. And then there's also just the scale of a hyperscale data center facility trying to bring all of that together to go and find a particular bit of data that you're going after is beyond non-trivial. It's nearly impossible. Hey, thanks for that. That's that's actually pretty cool. Uh, I honestly did not know the life cycle of a hard drive, and I can imagine that with the sheer sheer number of hard drives that we have in an, in, a, in one specific Azure data center, you know, the, even with a low percentage of failure, there's still a lot of hard drives. You know, the old adage is um, a small percentage of a very large number is still a large number. You know, one thing that I do a lot is compliance work with customers, sort of building threat models for them for their applications and making sure that they have all the appropriate mitigations in place, including things like TDE, transparent data encryption. But also invariably, you know, when we're looking at different programs, uh, we have to talk about things like, well, you know, what are the what are the physical, physical protections on the data center? 
what are the HR policies? Uh, do you have policies around hiring and firing people? Well, they're obviously outside of the scope of the application that we're designing, and certainly outside of my scope. But the customer still has to worry about it, right? Because they need to prove to their auditors that all the appropriate defenses and policies um, are in place and procedures are in place. You know, oftentimes this uh, ends up being uh, the customer has to look at SOC 1 and SOC 2 reports. So for those of you who are, you know, who are building on Azure, you may be very familiar with the shared responsibility model, which is some responsibilities lie with the customer uh, or the tenant more accurately, and some responsibilities lie with Azure itself. And things like physical protections, um, as Gary alluded to, are really within the, the purview of the data centers themselves. So when it comes to building out uh, the data that you need for a compliance program, you're probably going to have to have access to the SOC 1 and SOC 2 reports. Uh, those are available for um, all people who have an Azure, Azure subscription. Uh, they're available in the Trust Portal. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, if you're building out uh, information to pass on to some auditors, you're probably going to want to have access to the SOC 1 and SOC 2 reports. You've mentioned this to me before, but apparently um, you have been asked some pretty crazy questions about Azure data centers during uh, your time doing tours. Uh, are there some of them that you can share with us or can you share your favorite one with us? Yeah, so you mentioned, and I, I should have mentioned this as part of my role with the Microsoft Technology Center, is that one of the things that we do, and it's quite different from any other public cloud that I'm aware of, is that we will actually take customers into some of our data centers and actually show them the facilities. Um, now, in, in COVID world, we, we obviously can't do that. And so we've created a set of virtual experiences where we deliver a lot of that same content and we deliver it either behind closed doors and in, in an NDA type uh, setting or over over teams for you know and there's there's a lot of neat stuff that's in there and some of it is some of the stuff that I just talked about um, some of it is uh, things like for instance some of the stuff that we're doing next around data centers like for example we built a, a data center in a, in a submarine tube and dropped it in the ocean and we ran it as a data center under the ocean for a year and a half um, and so there's a lot of like future work that we're doing around data center technology. Um, but yeah, doing doing actual tours of our data centers is one of the the cooler things that I get to do. And then, yeah, there's obviously a lot of questions. And um, the the team that I work on that does data center tours, we we sort of keep a, a log of some of the most interesting questions that we get. Um, and currently, I, I think I'm still the record holder for one of the most challenging questions that I was asked. And it was on a uh, a tour where I was showing some some instances of some of our data center sites, and I think it was a picture of either Dublin or one of our Amsterdam campuses. And the guy stopped me and he said, "Hey, this is this is really interesting, but can you tell me where are the anti-missile defense emplacements on the site? Um, where where do they where are are they guns? Are they uh, anti-missile systems? What do you use for missile protection?" And that one really threw me. I actually had to stop and, and think about how I was going to answer that question because it was completely unexpected. Um, and you know, you, you get those questions, and some of them are very topical. For example, when uh, North Korea was lobbing missiles over Japan, um, it was a reasonably regular question. People would ask us about EMP protection or EMP shielding um, on our data centers. Did we have that? It, what, what did it look like? What was it rated for? Um, but yeah, the, the anti-missile system um, question is currently the most challenging question I've been asked on one of the tours. So uh, Gary, one thing we like to ask our guests is if you had one final point to make, uh, what would it be? 
So I, I'm going to be unbelievably rude, and I'm going to take two if you don't mind. Uh, one of them is that the way that we approach public cloud is very different. So I'm talking largely about our our big public cloud hyperscale data centers. You know these big. 32 and 64 megawatt bit barns that you can park two 737 jet aircraft into, and we've got bunches and lots of them. That's only one piece of the puzzle. And so we've started rolling out um, what we call edge zones, which are a subset of Azure services that are a lot closer to the eyeballs. Um, and then we have things like Azure Stack, which is an appliance-based Azure deployment that you can put in your own data center. Why I'm talking about that here is that because of the way that we build and deploy our software into this, we can have a consistent security model and a compliance model that's consistent for all of that environment. So when we're talking about digital transformation and what that looks like, it doesn't mean you need to go back a moving truck up to your data center, unload all of your servers and, and drop them off in, inside Azure. You don't have to move everything into to Azure public cloud in order to achieve what you're trying to get to. Um, there's a much more nuanced approach. Um, and then the other thing that I would say, and this is more of a plug, if you are really interested in how we build data centers, how we operate data centers, what's coming next, Mark Rasinovich, the CTO for Azure, does a fantastic talk on inside Azure data centers. And uh, there's, there's going to be a link to it in the show notes. And when he delivers this talk from Microsoft, it's standing room only, and we're talking like multiple ballrooms inside of a, a, a hotel, and everybody in Microsoft comes and watches it because it's so fascinating, some of the neat stuff that we're talking about, what's coming next, and some of the demos that he does are really fantastic. So anyone who has an hour and a half free, watch it because it's really, really engaging. Hey, thanks, Gary. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this week. I uh, know I learned a a few things. In fact, I think I learned about stuff I didn't know I didn't know. Um, clearly, data center security is a critical component of our tenant security posture, and I urge uh, all customers uh, to you know, take a look at the SOC 1 and SOC 2 reports as well, uh, especially around the physical security that we, that we have on our data centers. And also, thanks to all of you for joining us this week. Uh, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.